to remain standing and uh, turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 22 this morning. As you turn there, I just want to confess what a joy it is to be in the Lord's house on His day, uh, giving Him the praise that He deserves. And if you don't feel that way this morning, then we'll pray that the Lord will work that in your heart. Because I know sometimes... When you come to church, you may may not have your full heart into it. Uh, we can all be that way. So we'll begin reading verse 22 through the end of the chapter. That will be our text for the sermon this morning. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he remained with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his ministry. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the reading of God's Word, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that at times we are dull. We have hearts that are harder Then at other times, our ears are hard to hear, our eyes are hard to see. And so we pray for the work of your Spirit. We pray that He would be our teacher, that you would set our hearts aflame upon your truth, and especially a love for you and a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd bless the reading and preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this morning we return back to the Gospel of John. We pick up where we left off last time we were here. That's in the middle of John chapter 3. And remember in John chapter 3, there is this teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night. Perhaps he was embarrassed or perhaps he wanted full access to the Lord Jesus. And so he begins to talk to the Lord and the Lord teaches him of the necessity of regeneration, of being born again. The necessity of having a new heart given by God so that one may see and enter the kingdom of heaven. And also we learn there of the necessity of faith for 
without regeneration, no one can be uh, can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in order to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved, one must be born again. And now, as we enter the middle of the chapter through the end, we come back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who has already made an appearance in the first chapter, preparing the way of the Lord. And I'll just remind you, if you've already read it, in Matthew 11, verse 11, our Lord Jesus Christ said this about this prophet, John the Baptist. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so Jesus there is commending the ministry of John the Baptist. He is telling those who heard him to listen to John the Baptist to heed his ministry. And of course, John the Baptist's ministry was to point to the Messiah. He was the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've already looked at that. But as you think about John's role, John the Baptist's role of pointing to Christ, even some of his own disciples failed to see that role that he served. This becomes evident in our passage this morning. Uh, Some of his disciples did not fully understand or listen to the prophet's message. And so this is the context of one of the greatest statements uttered by any of the prophets. What is that statement? Well, if you look at verse 30, there it is. He, the Lord Jesus, must increase, but I must increase. So we're going to look at the context of this statement and then put it in its context and make several applications this morning. And so as we read in the text, then there were these two baptisms occurring simultaneously in tandem. And they were the baptism of Jesus, we're told, and also the baptism of John the Baptist. In verse 22, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, just west of the Dead Sea. And uh, he remained there, we were told, with them and baptized. And when I first read that, I thought, well, I didn't think Jesus baptized any man. Well, if you look down at chapter 4 and verse 2, John, the gospel writer... Tells us that, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. And so what's going on is John wants us to understand, John the Gospel writer, wants us to understand that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing, although Jesus himself did not administer the water of baptism. But his disciples were with him, baptizing in his name. And this was the baptism of our Lord Jesus then. And so that's going on. And then down in verse 23, it says, Now John, that is the Baptist, also is baptizing in Anon near Salem. And men speculate as to where this is. If you look up on a map, you can find it. Uh, But Anon means fountains, many fountains. And so John says there was much water there. That's why they were there baptizing. And so he explains. He explains in verse 24... Uh, A piece of information that maybe those who had read the other Gospels would would be asking and need. Uh, In verse 24 it says, For John had not yet been thrown into prison. And so if you read the other Gospel accounts, it seems immediately that after Jesus' baptism, 
that John the, the Baptist was thrown into prison for calling out Herod's illicit relationship with uh, Herodias. And so John explains that there was this lapse of time before he was thrown into prison. Some say months, maybe three months. And so you have Jesus in one area baptizing. And then you have John the Baptist baptizing in the other area or Jesus' disciples baptizing. There's an overlap. And what this represents is an overlap between John the Baptist's ministry and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what's going on. And so as this was happening, then there arose this issue among the disciples of John. Now, when we say the disciples of John, we should also think the disciples of who? Jesus. But there's this dispute. If you look at verse 25, it says it was among or between some of John's disciples and the Jew or the Jews about purification. Uh, We don't have the specifics about this debate. There were many Jewish leaders and writers obsessed, it would seem, with purification. We learned that from the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found not long ago. And they reflect the writings of that uh, period between the Old and New Testament. And so perhaps they were talking about the washing of hands. There was water involved with baptism. Nevertheless, the focus turns ultimately to the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of John. So they say in verse 36, Rabbi, they're calling John their teacher. He, that is Jesus, they don't even mention his name. He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified. Slight rebuke there. Behold, he is baptizing. And all are coming to him. And so his disciples, it becomes apparent are jealous, envious, very concerned of what is going on over there in Judea with Jesus and all these people flocking to him and not flocking so much to John the Baptist. There's this contrast, he, you, in the Greek. There's an emphasis on that contrast. And they speak in hyperbole. Often, if you want to make a point, sometimes you speak in this term with this this, um, device This rhetorical device, you speak in hyperbole, you exaggerate, you say, everybody's doing it, all are flocking to it, and that's what they're doing. They want John to see the dire situation here, that if this keeps up, John, um, you're going to have no more disciples. That's what's going on. And so, in other words, this movement of John the Baptist, humanly speaking, was, was losing momentum. John was losing disciples. And so his disciples see Jesus and John the Baptist as what? Competitors. Competing with one another. And John is losing the competition. And so they are unhappy with their teacher, their rabbi, John the Baptist. And they are jealous, it would seem, of the Lord Jesus Christ and his success, his ministry. That is happening in Judea. And so there's an important question we ought to pause and ask. What would John the Baptist do? What would John the Baptist say? Because humanly speaking, if he acted sinfully or inappropriately to the ministry of Jesus Christ, he could harm the earthly ministry of Jesus. 
Remember, there were some areas where Jesus couldn't perform miracles because others disobeyed him. They went out and told things that they shouldn't have told at that time. And I say humanly speaking. So this is critical as to what John would say, how he would react, lest he would stifle the work of Christ in his earthly ministry. Now, John's reaction would not be what his disciples expected. John hears this report, and in fact, he's excited about it. We read that, right? And so then we see his explanation for this joy, his joy, at this report. If you look at verse 29, he says at the end, Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John hears this concern of his disciples coming to him, lamenting about the success of Jesus' ministry. And he says, oh, great. My joy is fulfilled. My cup, as it were, it runs over. What? You know, it's kind of like this as we'll see. Those of you who have been part of a church plant will know about the role of the initial church planter. Um, or what we call sometimes in our circles a regional home missionary. Uh, ours is Lacey Andrews. And uh, often men such as himself will say, it's my job to work myself out of a job. And that was the job of John the Baptist. What I mean by that is the church planter, he hopes to see the group forming to such a number that he can hand off that group to someone else, another man who will come in and lead that flock and, and organize it, become organizing pastor. Well, John the Baptist's ministry was temporary like that. So let's see what he said. First of all, he lets his disciples know that this is the hand of God on Jesus' ministry. Uh, this is all according to God's blessing. In verse 27, he says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And so what is he saying? Well, heaven is that place where God dwells, our Father who art in heaven. And of course, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But it is that special place where God resides. And so when he says of heaven, he's talking about where God is. And so what he's saying is a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. What's his point? Number one, his own ministry is a ministry that has been gifted to him by God. And as Job says elsewhere, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But also when it comes to the ministry of Christ, um, he's saying that God the Father has blessed Jesus' earthly ministry. Remember at his baptism, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What? Hear him. Listen to him. And so this is the hand of God. And in John chapter 6, a little later, in verse 65, Jesus will say the same thing. Jesus says, there, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And so that talks about our lack of ability, our inability to come to Jesus in our own strength because we're dead in sins and trespasses and so forth. But ultimately we see here, That it is God, the Father, who brings men to Jesus Christ. What's the point? Well, as John is alluding to, um, if men are coming to Jesus Christ out of good motive, 
to adhere to his message, to follow Jesus, to be baptized, to show their devotion to him, then this is God's blessing. This is the Father's blessing on our Lord's ministry. And the second thing that John tells them here, he informs them of his role and his message, really his peculiar role as a prophet. And that this message has been the same all along. If you look there in verse 28, he tells them, you yourselves. Does that sound redundant? It's because it is. It's like you, you, you alone, you know, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. This goes back to chapter one. Remember, John is there testifying and he is telling them he is not the Christ, but there's one who's coming after him whose sandals or the straps of his sandals. He's not worthy to lose to loose. And he points to Jesus. He looks at him, says he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's been his message all along. His message has not changed. His disciples have either forgotten or not taken heed to his message. And so then he gives this illustration as to his role. That's in verse 29. He who is the bride is the bridegroom. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. I told my family, maybe you know this. I don't know why we called the groom the groom today instead of the bridegroom. But the bridegroom is the groom. The bride and groom. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, and I'm going to just call this guy the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy is fulfilled. Well, what is he talking about? Well, they had this custom in their day when it came to weddings. And so the best man or the friend of the bridegroom, the groom, he was responsible to put together many aspects of the wedding ceremony. He presided over the wedding feast. And then he, he was the liaison between the bride and the groom. He brought the two together. And this was done in a very special way. There was the bridal chamber. And so the bride would, at, at some point in this wedding ceremony, remember it lasted about a week, I think, or something like that, typically, um, at, at the end of it all, when it's time for the consummation of all this, the, the, the bride would be in her chamber and the, the um, friend or the best man of the groom would guard that chamber. And so when he would hear the groom approach the bridal chamber and hear his voice, he would allow him in. He was to let no other in but he would allow the groom to come in. And so once that happened, the best man would walk away rejoicing. His role was complete. His role was to bring the bride and the groom together. So what is the parallel? John the Baptist is the best man. John the Baptist's role was to bring the bride, Israel, and the bridegroom, Jesus, together. And so his role is temporary and it was peculiar as a prophet of God. No, the prophet had this role in this way. And so that's what he's saying. He says, you know, that, that's me. I'm, I'm the, the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the best man 
Therefore, this joy of mine is full. And so that's John's reaction. That's his response, his emotion, his praise at the news that the ministry of Jesus is growing. Jesus' popularity, Jesus' fame, Jesus' glory is growing among men. So it gives that illustration. Well, then in verses 30 and following, we have here the last words of John the Baptist in this gospel. Now, some say it's really, and it is a little difficult at times to, to figure out where John the Baptist leaves off from verse 30 forward. I mean, we know in chapter 4 and verse 1, it's John the gospel writer picking it up. But some say, well, maybe John the Baptist um, proclaimed verse 30, and then there's commentary by John the gospel writer after that. My hunch is that verses 30 through 36 are still John the Baptist speaking. And so he's giving this summary. And uh, he says there in verse 30, he, he must increase, but I must decrease. And as Leon Morris, one of the commentators of this gospel, wrote, surely this is one of the greatest utterances that ever fell from human lips. What does it mean, though? Well, notice the word must. He must increase. There is a sense in which this is the volition and will of John the Baptist. This is his intent to see that Jesus increases. But ultimately, this is part of God's eternal plan. Jesus, the eternal word, John 1.1, has come down, taken upon human flesh, John 1.14. And he must go to the cross. And after the cross, he will be exalted. And he is exalted today. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And so he must increase. And I think John is saying, look, I know you're resisting this, but he must. This is part of God's plan. You need to see this. This is inevitable. It's like the growth of his kingdom, Daniel 2. It's the kingdom which will overshadow and overpower and overtake every other worldly kingdom. And so it is with Christ in his own glory. And so this is in accordance with God's plan. Then he says he must increase and I must decrease. What does that mean? Jesus, it has been said, must continue to grow. And John the Baptist continued to diminish. And that is to say, Jesus himself, Jesus alone has the supreme role in the kingdom and church of the living God. And it's his kingdom that is the kingdom which will advance. Not our kingdom. Not our world's. Matthew Henry put it like this. He said, If our abasement may but in the least contribute to the advancement of Christ's name, we must cheerfully submit to it and be content to be anything, to be nothing, so that Christ may be all. That's called humility, right? The opposite of what? Pride. As Colossians 1.18 puts it, 
This is what the Bible says. It says Jesus is the head of the body. The church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. So in other words, the result of Jesus being the head, being the beginning and the firstborn, is that He might have the preeminence, the highest rank and honor. No one next to Him in that place. And so this is John the Baptist's role. He is the forerunner. He is to point to Christ. He is to bring believing Israel and Jesus together. And once he has fulfilled that role, to sit back and watch Jesus perform his earthly ministry as long as he could. Because as we know, John the Baptist suffered under Herod. Now, at the end of this section, verses 31 and following, uh, John gives his reasons for the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So let's look at these. There's about four In verse 31, John reminds us of Jesus' divine origin. Why is Jesus to have the preeminence? Why is Jesus to have the highest rank and order above all? Because of His divine origin. You know, we've talked a lot or probably thought a little bit about the incarnation at this time of the year. I was talking about this with my own family recently. And it's a little, it it is not just a little, it's, it's really hard to understand. And it's a miracle. But it happened. The second person of the Godhead came down. The Virgin Mary was overshadowed from on high. And she conceived the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. Two distinct natures, a divine nature and human nature, joined together inseparably in one person. By the way, he's going to dwell like that forever. From here, from that point on forward. That's what Jesus first did to pay for our sins. So that he could go and pay for our sins. And so we talk about the incarnation. And so here John reminds us of that. Um, He who comes from heaven is above all. So he comes from where God came from. Why? Because he's God. John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And in the Greek, God was the word. Jesus is God. The God man. And so if he's God, he is over all. He is the creator. We are the creature. And so he has authority and power, as Romans 9 puts it, over the clay. Just as the potter has that same power and authority. And so he reminds us of Jesus' divine nature. In John 3, 13, Jesus has already alluded to this. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is of heaven. And Jesus will assert this same truth later in the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, for instance. In John chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says He is the bread of heaven who comes down and gives life to the world. Remember in John chapter 1, verses 15 and verse 30, John the Baptist said of Christ, He's before me. And who was born first? John the Baptist. Than Jesus. And John is saying, Jesus is the one who is before me. He's the eternal one. In John chapter 5, um, Jesus asserts this and teaches this in verse 23 because there were those Jews who wanted to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. 
And so in verse 23, he says that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So whether we're talking to a a good old boy, family member, or friend, or we're talking to a Muslim, a Hindu, um, any other false religion out there that is not the one true religion, the Christian religion, we need to remind them, if they do not honor Jesus Christ and come to Him and worship and fall down before Him, they do not honor the Heavenly Father Himself. When we talk about Christianity... There is this exclusivity as the, to the way of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ alone. He is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, he himself, Jesus, has said. And so Jesus is of divine origin. In verse 32, we find that Jesus' message is the direct message from heaven. Jesus taught this already to Nicodemus. The message that he has, he he brought it down with him from heaven, from where God dwells. And so that's the message that was already in in heaven. It's part of that divine plan, the plan of salvation that was formulated before the creation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 even tells us, Ephesians 1.12 and so forth. And so he brings this message of salvation down with him. Verse 32, it says, And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And by the way, no one receives his testimony. Then it says, He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. And this is not doublespeak. Um, This is emphasizing that, that many rejected Jesus at his first coming. Just like John chapter 1, I think it's verse 11 and verse 12 tell us, um, he came unto his own, his own received, received him not, but as many as received them, to them he gave the right or power, authority to become the sons or children of God. So his own didn't receive him, but those who did receive him. So that's a similar statement here in these two verses. But notice what he says in verse 33. The one who has received his testimony, the son of man's testimony, Jesus' testimony, has certified that God is true. What does he mean? Does God need our approval? No, because in one sense, remember what Paul says there in Romans, I think it's chapter 3. He says, let God be true and every man a liar. So if no one ever believes the gospel, he says, God is still true and every man's a liar. Why? Because they haven't, in these words, certified the message of God. In biblical times, uh, this word certify represented something. It... um, was used as a seal for the process of sealing a document. If there was a contract or a will, um, those who would sign it would often stamp their seal upon it. That means they approve of it, they agree with it, they attest to its truthfulness. And so he who believes his testimony, that of Jesus, certifies, he puts his stamp on it saying that it is true, that God is true. So in other words, those who believe are accepting what God has said. That is the truth of God's revelation concerning Jesus Christ. And therefore, John's disciples need to believe and certify that God is true. That Jesus is the one sent from God. And I'll ask you, have you certified that message? Do you believe in your own heart 
that the testimony about Jesus Christ from God's own lips and His Word and Scripture are true. If you don't, you're calling God a liar. But if you have, He says, He who has received His testimony has certified that God is true. You're in agreement with God and those who believe will have everlasting life as the end of this passage tells us. And so, Jesus' message is the direct message from heaven. Verse 34, Jesus speaks on behalf of His heavenly Father. I think that's the intent there. It says, For whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. And when it says the Spirit by measure, I think He's contrasting all of the other prophets, even the apostles themselves, and all those who received Uh, The gift of the Spirit, Um, they receive a measure of faith. They receive a measure of the Holy Spirit. And the prophets, in the Old Testament especially, we're, we're told that the Spirit came upon them. And when the Spirit came upon them, they spoke. But when it comes to Jesus, especially at His baptism where it's there represented, the Spirit coming upon Him, anointing Him who is the Messiah, the Christ, that is the Anointed One... Jesus received the full, ongoing measure of the Holy Spirit. And so everything that he says is true and from God of divine origin. So Jesus himself is of divine origin. His message is of divine origin. And he he therefore speaks on behalf of his heavenly Father. I think that's the Spirit there. The intent of verse thirty. Four, And then fourth, the Son shares in the Father's love and authority in verse 35. He who believes, rather, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And so, what is John's point in saying that? Look, guys, I know you think it's about us versus them. Or me versus Jesus. But Jesus is the Lamb. He is the one come down from heaven. He has the truth. As Peter says, Lord, only you have the words of eternal life. And so we must go to Him. And by the way, it's the Father who has loved Him, set His affection upon Him. Therefore, we too should love Him with the Father and partake of that same love and affection of Jesus Christ. To not love Jesus Christ is to not love God the Father and appreciate God the Father. That's what he's saying. And so for these reasons, Jesus is immeasurably superior to John the Baptist. That is what John is saying. And so he closes with the clincher, the climax in verse 36 He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. By the way, that teaches us that we are justified when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not at a later date and time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who believe in the Son have eternal life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on Again, I remind you, what is it that one must do in order to receive the wrath of God and spend eternity in hell forever, suffering eternal damnation and destruction? 
One must do nothing. One must simply omit believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are born children of wrath. Why? Because of our sins. But Jesus himself took upon himself, his own body on the cross and his sufferings. He took upon the penalty that we deserve God's wrath and curse. That we might escape it forever. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, our fine, our eternal damnation and penalty is paid in full by Jesus Christ through his shed blood. And so, we have this in verse 36. As we think about it quickly, let me make about four points of application. Uh, Well, first of all, here we see the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Application is sometimes simply belief. To affirm what is revealed in Scripture, certain doctrines and truths which do apply to our lives, of course. But have you noticed in this section uh, the revelation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Jesus is of divine origin in verse 32. There's mention of the Spirit in verse 34. Mention of the Father in verse 35. And we say, we believe, there is one God who exists in three persons These three persons are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Second, put it in the words of John, Jesus must increase. Jesus is the one who must be exalted. Jesus is the one whose glory must go out upon this earth and increase just as his kingdom. And this is to be in our everyday lives. Yes, I think there is that sense in which we often perhaps first understand these words, he must increase, I must decrease, is that Christ must have the glory, not me. Not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, be the glory, but unto you be the glory, as the psalmist wrote. Yes, that is true. And Jesus alone is the way back to God. And so we must point people to him in that way. And, And this must especially be true in the lives of ministers, pastors, and church leaders of all kinds. This verse is, the, it gives us really the mark, the primary mark of the Christian ministry. It is humility. Humility. Pointing to Jesus Christ. At all times, at any time possible, through one's life, but also through one's lips. You know, I wrote, I, wrote, I didn't read, I read a book, I didn't write a book told my child, my son, I said, I write sermons every week. But um, anyway, Al Martin, some of you may know of him, he wrote a book years ago on the Christian ministry, and uh, it's called You Lift Me Up. And in that book, he talks about uh, the chronic dependence upon the minister by some of the sheep. And really, he's, he's rebuking, not the sheep, he's rebuking the pastor who does this, who over times has this culture where he is always the go-to guy, where the sheep may not consult the word themselves or flee to Jesus first, but they go to him first. And he says it is an unhealthy dependence upon the minister and not Christ himself. I've seen this uh, before with with ministers and pastors. It is unhealthy. Um, It tends to lend itself to a cliquish and frankly cult-like church culture. 
And so the pastor is exalted. He is exalted above all the people. He is exalted above all the pastors. And yeah, he might be just at the feet of Jesus, but in reality, he's like right there next to him. And don't misunderstand me. Um, I love it when you share with me personally what you're learning, what your struggles are, how I might pray for you. And if by God's grace, I might be able to help you with the word of God. I, I cherish that. I love it. I got my phone number. It's on the website. It's on the back of the bulletin. Some of you text me all the time. I encourage that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is an inordinate exaltation of any any man, but in particular, any Christian minister. And this happens in evangelicalism. It happens in Christendom. It even happens in the Roman Catholic Church where the church itself is exalted because it has the sacraments. And so what men say there is that if you're not a member of the Roman Catholic Church, you don't have salvation because you don't receive the sacraments which give us life and all this hogwash. There's the Mass itself which is diminishing to the work of Christ. Even the priesthood in that context and really, frankly, in in some evangelical context... You know, I I would never want to be called the vicar of Christ, that I stand in the place of Christ. Maybe you could argue that there's a place for it, but don't ever call me that, please. Um, One Roman Catholic archbishop years ago wrote this. He said, without the priest, the death and passion of our Lord would be of no avail to us. That right there sounds heretical. Without the priest, the death and passion of our Lord would be of no avail to us. And then he says, why? He says this, by one word from his lips, he changes a piece of bread into a God. Why is it that in Roman Catholicism, they adore the elements of the Lord's Supper? It's because they believe that at some point the priest utters his hocus pocus. The elements are transformed into the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, you have sitting before you the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you are called to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So you worship the elements. You see all the heresies right there concerning the church, concerning the mass, concerning the priesthood. But this happens not only in that context. It happens in any Christian context where the bishop or the pastor is distanced, are distanced from the laity and elevated over the other offices and other people in the church. I mean, today we have rock star pastors. And I'm not going to lie, there are certain pastors I'll, I appreciate more than others. There are certain pastors I listen to. Maybe their brain is kind of wired like mine or spiritually they are where I am. They, the Lord uses them to communicate truth to me. I get that. And ultimately, for good or ill, people go to a certain church because they, they hear the preaching and they understand it. They appreciate it. And hopefully it's because they hear Christ. But if it's all about a man and his kingdom and his ministry, watch out. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. And so if it's about books, it's a, if it's about the, the name, if it's about the dynasty passing down the ministry from father to son to son to son, watch out. Christ must be exalted. In fact, you know, recently I did a study on uh, church architecture. And the reason the pulpit came into being in the churches was not only to have a soundboard behind the pastor because they didn't have the electricity, therefore they didn't have the PA system, but they had huge pulpits. 
So the sound would project, but also so that the minister would kind of be behind the pulpit. So the emphasis is on what he is saying, not so much his appearance or himself. So we could go on and on and on. I, I do not like calling the church my church. Kevin, what's going on at your church? Well, at Providence, the Lord's church, he died for the church, not me. And so we could go on and on and on. There's no room for pride or competition or jealousy in the kingdom. And so when we see God blessing a faithful ministry, a ministry that seeks to follow Christ, that seeks to follow His way of doing ministry, that seeks to preach the unadulterated gospel and truth of God, the whole counsel of God. And God is sending His sheep. They're hearing the voice of Christ going to that place. Let us not be jealous. Let us say praise God. Let me not be jealous of another pastor who is more gifted than me. When I was in seminary, I had a pretty large class to go through seminary with me. There were were guys there more gifted, more qualified than me. And the Lord humbles us. And He really chooses not to use us until He humbles us. And sometimes that humbling is a hard fall. And so then we have to ask the question, are we going to be followers of men or of Christ? Followers of men or of Christ? Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Of course, in Corinth, there was that rock star pastor problem. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. Well, I am of Jesus. No, we appreciate the different contributions faithful and gifted men bring to the kingdom of God. And we give God the praise for that. Why? Because what do you have that you have not received? And so I'll end with this question. Is Jesus increasing in your life? How is Jesus increasing in your own life? Is it your heartbeat to think and say, He must increase I must decrease. You know, from without, from the perspective of others, when they give you a compliment, when they acknowledge your gifts and graces, are you like Ronald Reagan? What? In the 80s, Ronald Reagan, he was sometimes called Mr. Teflon because there were those who would hurl insults at him in these press conferences and they just slid right off and they ricocheted. Well, when people send flattery, compliments your way, do you, like Mr. Teflon, let them ricochet up to heaven where Christ is? Acknowledging that He has gifted you. Well, praise God. I thank the Lord for that. That's all it, all it takes. And then are you growing in your love and understanding for Him? Is Jesus just in your top ten? Or is He your all-time number one? And so this year, as we begin another year, make it your resolution with me to see Christ in your own life and in the lives of others to increase and yourself decrease. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for the time that we have to spend in it together. We pray that at this fellowship, Christ would increase. That through the, the ministries here, your sheep would hear his voice and be drawn to him, not to a building, not to a personality, not to a pet doctrine, but to the Lord Jesus Christ through your holy word. We pray in his name. Amen.